Uh, this morning, we return to our teaching series from the book of Ephesians that we've titled uh, Embracing Unity as a People of God. I believe this is our 15th week in Ephesians. And today, we're going to explore the first 14 verses or so from Ephesians chapter 5. And we're going to discuss Paul's discourse on living as one in the light. <clears throat> so, as we begin this morning, let me remind you, that Paul is writing in this letter to this church in Ephesus that he actually founded as a, as a missionary. Um, this first century church at Ephesus uh, in the early years was wildly successful at spreading the gospel to this entire region in a very short time. And so from Ephesus, without Paul visiting these other cities... The gospel spread out like spokes from a wagon wheel around Ephesus, and there were these great churches formed there that Paul had actually never been in those uh, cities. And then for some time after that, uh, Ephesians, this uh, Ephesian church kind of remained the epicenter of Christianity in that uh, part of the world. Now, it is also important to note that this church uh, early on was composed largely of Gentile converts. And it was located in a city that was characterized by both affluence and sexual immorality of virtually every flavor. Does that sound familiar to culture that you know? So in this letter to the church in Ephesus, from which we're about to read here, Paul goes to great lengths uh, as he writes this letter uh, and expounds on these themes. He goes to great Links to remind the believers there that, first of all, of their own shared identity that they have in Christ. Uh, Secondly, he continues to remind them of their shared faith in the gospel. And then third is that they have this unifying purpose as ambassadors for Christ. Then, in today's message and where we're going to land today, he takes this pause, so to speak, And he reminds the church that living just like the culture around them is not okay as children of God. He reminds them that in this culture, they are to represent light and not darkness. And you have to surmise that if Paul went to this great length to talk to them about this issue, then there must have been a problem in this church there in Ephesus. So that's kind of the context from where we're going to come from in today's uh, passage. But... To begin this morning, I just want to ask you to consider one question for just a moment. In Tomball, Texas, where you live right now, what sins are we most tempted to commit? In other words, just by living in this area at this point in time, what sins are you most likely to be enticed to commit? I ask this question because by living here, we are enmeshed in a cultural context that makes some sin more acceptable and therefore a more powerful temptation. What do I mean? Although you might have thought about it, not many of us seriously contemplated murder this week, right? There may be some exceptions by the chuckles, but... But most of us didn't seriously contemplate murder. Why? Because murder is not socially acceptable in our culture, and there's even penalties to pay, and you could go to prison or worse, right? But there are some sins in our culture, in our culture, that are more acceptable 
And because of that, they're therefore a more powerful temptation. I I was standing in in line at the Kroger's there this week at the self-checkout area, and and I noticed the front page of a uh, women's magazine, and it drew my mine because of some picture. I don't know. I I looked at it, and there in bold letters on the top of the magazine, it said this. It said, how to make sex even better once you're engaged. And I thought to myself, well, wow, there's a lot of implied values in that statement. And then right next to that magazine was another magazine. And the titles even more interesting it said it said don't just settle for good find out how to get everything you want from life and from your man now never mind how terrifying that second headline might sound to us guys the point is is that you don't have to be around very long in our culture to know that greed and sexual immorality are no longer just acceptable but they've instead been elevated to the point that they're now considered virtues. So you see that the culture that we live in is not so different from the culture that was present in Ephesus where the Ephesian church was planted. Well, why does that matter? Well, as TBC planted in this culture that we're planted in, we should pay very close attention to what Paul says in these verses from where we're going to teach from today. So, if you're taking notes for your life group discussion, in these passages from Ephesians chapter 5, I believe that there are three uh, key truths that we should take note of uh, as a church in our culture and as individual believers in our culture. So, truth number one is all sin is rooted in idolatry. Number two, all behavior as, I'm sorry, Our behavior as believers should never betray our identity. Our behavior as believers should never betray our identity. And number three, it's a little bit longer. Even though we are saved by grace, our mission will ultimately reflect our identity. One more time. Even though we are saved by grace, our mission will ultimately reflect our identity. So let's begin this morning with truth number one, that all sin is rooted in idolatry. Turn with me now to Ephesians chapter 5, and we're going to look at the first six verses. Or if you'd like, you can follow on the projector uh, above. So beginning in verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 5, it says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering, and a sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So in this passage, Paul jumps into this chapter 
by saying, if you are a Christ follower, if you are a believer, then don't act like someone who is not. And he goes on to list two categories, if you will, of sin that were of particular influence in the city in Ephesus. And the first category was sexual immorality, and the second was greed. He says, don't even hint at being part of sexual immorality, and and don't live a life of greed where you're lusting after material things. Now, note this. Not only do these two categories of sin share prominence in Ephesus and in Tomball, but these two categories have in common something else. They are both derived from a self-centered life, one that seeks fulfillment outside of God. In other words, Paul says that sexual immorality and greed are both rooted in idolatry. Well, how are these things idolatry? Well, idolatry is at its very core an attempt to find contentment and satisfaction in life as a replacement for God. When we understand this, when we realize that every sin begins as a declaration of autonomy from God, then we realize that when we sin, we declare that we need more than God to be content, to be complete. And if you follow Paul's logic to its natural conclusion, he simply says that people who claim to be Christ followers should never be modeling a life that says we need more than what God has to offer. We should not be modeling a life where we take good things and elevate them to the level of ultimate things. Because when we do this, our Christianity looks like a sham, and unbelievers can see it every time. What business do believers have in worshiping anything besides God? But, it's a big but, when such idolatry is so commonplace in the culture that you live, it's very tempting to believers, right? Because it's socially acceptable. You can do these things and just fit right in. For example, if you're listening to this teaching this morning and you are a Christian and you are engaging in sexual behavior outside of marriage, whether it's physical or Internet-based, you are not doing anything that would make you stand out in this culture in any particular way, right? However, at the same time, God says that this behavior is sin and ultimately idolatry and a path that ends in futility and in in grief. So that brings us to our truth point number two. Our behavior should never betray our identity. Look again with me at Ephesians chapter 5 and go down to verses 7 through 13. So Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 7. It says, Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. So in this passage, Paul contrasts here that instead of living a life focused upon greed and lust and idolatry, Christians walk as children of light. And when Paul uses this term, children of light, he's referring to all people everywhere who have the Holy Spirit indwelled within them. 
And he underscores that all people who are not indwelled with the Holy Spirit are in fact in darkness or as he describes elsewhere in other scripture as spiritually blind. Paul then goes on to say that as children of light, when when we walk as if we were also in darkness by chasing after immorality or greed or idolatry, then we in fact betray our very identity uh, as Christians. When I uh, was a young boy uh, in the early 70s, was about eight or nine, my uh, family, we had this 67 Charger, Dodge Charger. Now, this is not the cool Charger, like the one on the Dukes of Hazard, or for the youth, like the movie Blade that Wesley Snipes drives that car. So it's not the it's not the '69 Charger; it's the '67 Charger. And the difference is, is the '67 Charger is about two feet longer and weighs about four thousand pounds more. <laughs> Bring them in total to I don't know twelve thousand. It's like a dump truck, okay? But when I was growing up, that was the coolest car to me. It was so awesome, and, and, and that. Feeling about this car was only escalated by the fact that my mom at the time, who's now in her late 70s, my mom at the time relished the fact when some kid would come up and try to race her in this car because she was always outrunning all these guys, you know, while I was in the car, you know. We didn't have car seats back then, so I was rolling all the way. (laughs) About 15 years ago... I was at a swap meet, which is, if you don't know what that is, that's where men trade men's junk. And so I was at a swap meet, and I should walk up on what? But a 67 Charger. looked just like the one that we grew up with. And all this nostalgia washed all over me. And it must have because I paid, like, way too much for it. But my idea was to take this old 67 Charger and restore it. So this was like 10 or 15 years ago. And so uh, I embarked on restoring this classic muscle car. Okay, this is the way cars are supposed to be. And so new paint, new engine, big block 440 for those of you guys who can say, you know, big block 440, new transmission. New brakes, new paint, new interior. When I finished this car, it was, it was absolutely beautiful. And, and this is the amazing thing. It's like two days after this car was finally all put together and running and looking right. I went to a car show, and the very first car show I entered won uh, best in class for that era muscle car. And I was so proud of this car. It was, it was an awesome car. Now, unbeknownst to the people who were voting on the winner, the judges in this contest. Car shows for you ladies, it's like a beauty contest for cars. But anyway, where you can go and hang out with other guys who have this muscle car affliction, you know. And anyway, but there was a few things that they didn't know the, by judges and by looking at the car. Because when you walked up to look at the car, it was beautiful in appearance. It looked great. When you started the engine, it just had this rumble. If you've ever heard of big block Mopar engine with Flowmasters on it. It's just this guttural, great sound, okay? It sounded good. It looked good. It just looked awesome, okay? The judges did not know, though, that this 440 that 
me and an expert built together was an absolute pig. This car could not get out of its own way. It was so slow. (laughs) And the fact that it weighed as much as a dump truck probably wasn't helping our cause. But if you ever got this 67 Charger, if you ever got it up to a high speed, which would take you a mile, but if you ever got it up to full speed, then Lord help you if you ever had to stop fast. Because one of several things would happen when you hit the brake. It would either dive left, dive light, lock up all four wheels, or just not stop at all. And it was random. Not only that, you had to drive with the windows down regardless of the temperature outside because if you didn't, you would die from carbon monoxide poisoning at every light. Uh, My tailor, my my youngest daughter, I took her for a ride in it one time because I was so proud of it. I remember she was about four, and she got in, and she looked around, sniffed, and she goes, this doesn't smell healthy. And so, and and where's the seatbelt, you know? <laughs> like, we don't have those. Anyway, <clears throat> so I took this car to the car show and won the car show, because these people didn't know that, because it looked awesome, right? And then after I won the car show, I hung around talking to everybody possible because I wanted to leave as late as possible because I didn't want them to see the car show winner's car die when I came to too much of a low idol. And I was also scared to death that some high school kid in a stock Civic with a Wawa muffler was going to outrun me. (laughs) This car was a pig in a dress, okay? It was not what a muscle car should be. Even though it had the appearance and it had the sound and it looked impressive and it could win shows, this was not a muscle car. Listen to my point here, other than I just like to talk about cars. But when Christians live a life that is focused around idols and sin... We become just like that 67 Dodge Charger. We're a walking, talking hypocrisy. I know folks like that. And at times I've been one of them. I'll call them my 67 Charger Christians. Paul, in this passage, not only says we can't betray our identity as Christians by what we do, He goes one step further and he says that not only should Christians be walking in the light, we should in fact be exposing acts of darkness in the body of Christ. How do you expose acts of darkness in the body of Christ? I'm not encouraging you to be a tattletale. What I'm encouraging you to do is that if you live a life in Christ, we present to those people around us, even in the body, this stark contrast to the values of our culture. This is especially important when the values of our culture are constantly trying to work their ways into the fabric of our church. Brothers and sisters, get get Paul's point here. Often what seems normal and acceptable in our culture stands in stark contrast to what is biblical and right in the eyes of God. And sometimes the differences can be subtle. And the culture around us has this insidious 
tendency to slowly push its way into the church. In medicine, it's like an infection in the body of Christ that if it's not exposed and expunged, will weaken and eventually kill the mission of that group of believers. And, and sadly, I've seen it happen. Let me give you an example. <clears throat> Let's say someone at work files an incorrect report that, by the way, makes them look better than you to the boss. In corporate America, what would you do when you discover this information? What would you do? Well, first of all, you'd go and do your homework, right? Because you think he's wrong. You go to your homework and you do your homework and you investigate, right? And once you've gathered your facts and you've investigated, then you gather your case and you write a, a report of your own. And at the perfect time or at the perfect meeting, just at the right moment, you deliver your report. And it is a real zinger. And it not only elevates your status, but it really singles out the guy who filed the false report. And when you do this, you're vindicated. And not only are you vindicated, but you've humiliated the other guy who was the original offender. That's the way corporate America works, right? That's how you climb the chain. That's how you work. But in the body of Christ, Matthew chapter 18 says what? It says when you are offended, when you are wronged, when you are hurt, we should not talk to anyone else, but rather go to the person who has offended you and try to be reconciled. Why is this? Why, why does God make this a priority? And here's why. Because the way our culture would handle this situation would ultimately lead to hurt and sometimes permanent division. And by sticking to Matthew 18 in this scenario, instead of being opportunist, opportunistic, we are called to work to be reconciled to one another and to preserve unity of the body of Christ. Now, preferring reconciliation and unity over self-preservation and advancement is not America's way. But it is what God has commanded of His followers. You see, Matthew 18 speaks to the motives of our behavior. And it leaves no room for deceitful manipulation or personal vendettas within the body. Time and time again, our identity as believers is betrayed when we disobey the God that we profess to follow by following the values of our culture. So Paul makes this simple truth claim that our behavior should never betray the identity that we have in Christ. Let's go to truth point number three. Even though we are saved by grace, our mission will ultimately reflect our identity. At this point, you may ask, well, what is the point of all this talk about behavior and sin? Isn't this legalism? If we're indeed saved by grace, does our behavior and representing our identity as Christians really matter? Is it all that important? Well, I believe that there are two reasons, principally, why... What we do as believers is important. And I believe that these reasons are actually behind what Paul is saying in chapter 5 of Ephesians when he makes this pause. So reason number one of why our behavior as believers is important. God loves his children so much that he was willing 
to die for us. And this same God and Father does not desire for His children to live like our culture. Why? Because He knows that this is a life of utter futility. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 and go down to verse 18. I'm going to read 18 through 21. Romans 8, Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 18. It says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Get this. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Paul here in Romans says that living life like the world is the very type of bondage and futility that Christ died to save us from in the first place. He did this to set us free. Living in sexual immorality and greed or any other type of idolatry that you can pick is not getting over. It's instead bondage. And and this is not what God wants for His children. Our behavior is important because it is important to God, the God who loves us. And He really wants our ultimate good. Reason number two of why our behavior as believers is important. When God saved us and when God sets us free, He also called us to make disciples. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Go down to verse uh, 16 and we'll do 16 through 20. 2 Corinthians five sixteen through 20. So speaking to believers, Paul says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, and he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Get this. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So that is our mission in life, and our mission is really just the reflection of our identity as Christ followers, as disciples. The identity of a disciple is reflected by their life's underlying mission. That's the point that James makes when he says faith without works is dead. He's not saying that works make faith. What he's saying is that our faith and our identity as disciples is reflected by our mission. As believers, the Holy Spirit does not indwell us just to make us feel warm inside, but rather to empower us for the mission. And when we betray our identity and therefore betray the mission, the Holy Spirit is grieved. Look with me just for a moment. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 through 16. 
beginning in verse 13 of Matthew 5, it says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. God intended for us to be light and salt in a dark world. And it seems that more often than not, the church has molded itself into a religious extension of American culture, whereby Christians are distinguished only by the songs we sing and maybe we vote for conservative candidates or listen to KSBJ sometimes. But our lives are otherwise indistinguishable from the lives of unbelievers. We as the church, as redeemed individuals and collectively as the body of Christ, should stand in stark contrast to the values of this culture. But get this, more often than not, the beliefs of, the beliefs of an unbeliever, they don't change while things are going well. But eventually, they come face to face with the futility of life without Christ that's described in Romans chapter 8. And often this occurs when the Holy Spirit begins to call them. And unfortunately, the Holy Spirit often begins to call someone by dropping a boulder on their plans for success. When this happens, who will they turn to? Are they going to turn to their friends who do exactly what they do? Are they going to turn to their friends who are chasing the very same things in life? No, they're going to turn to a believer who lives life in a stark contrast to the values of the culture, stark contrast to their values. When this happens, this is a divine appointment whereby the Holy Spirit has brought this person into your life for you to disciple. Do you see this? Our behavior, which reflects our identity, it doesn't save us, but it is so important if you're going to be used by God. If, if you're going to be obedient and be a disciple maker. So I believe that these three truths are what Paul is driving at when he pauses in Ephesians 5 to list these things that we should not be doing. However, <clears throat> let me stop and just caution you. If you think that you should come away today from this passage with a grocery list of sins to avoid as some path to righteousness, then you have missed the point of the whole passage and quite possibly you've become a Hindu. Paul does not list these sins so that your identity will be based on the things that you avoid. You know, Joe who doesn't drink, Bob who doesn't smoke, and feel who doesn't sleep around, that, that's not an identity. That's a vacuum of an identity, right? Our identity can't be based just on the things that we avoid. No, Paul lists these sins as prominent sins in Ephesus and in Tomball, and he says that participating in these sins betrays your real identity as a Christian. Not doing these things is not your identity, but doing these things does betray your identity. 
What is the real identity of a Christian? The Bible says that our identity is that of a disciple. A disciple is a Christ follower who does what Christ commanded. He makes other disciples. Therefore, our identity in Christ is determined much more by what we do than by the sins that we avoid. And even more, Paul says that a believer who follows after this world's ways is not doing what Christ commanded and therefore betrays his own identity as a disciple. And so we've come full circle, but let me be very clear on this. You can avoid all the sins listed specifically in Ephesians 4 and Ephesians 5 and many other places in the Bible. You can avoid all these sins and still be living a life of complete disobedience to God. Uh, what do I mean? <clears throat> I have this acquaintance who now has a home-based job via satellite Internet where he works from home. And he, and he lives in this isolated cabin, and he avoids as much human contact as possible. He reads his Bible every day, and he even listens to sermons by podcast on a regular basis, and he avoids most sinful behavior. And when I have weeks like I had last week, there are times that I have to admit that this kind of life sounds kind of awesome. <laughs> However, this life of, of sin avoidance is the opposite of being salt and light in the darkness. This kind of life disciples no one, and it rejects the great commission given directly to us by Christ. But there's even a deeper issue at stake with a religion that's based upon sin avoidance. Because this type of religion, it essentially says that I'm basically pretty good guy. I'm basically pretty good and righteous. And so my spiritual walk through life is really just one where I need to avoid contamination from a sinful world. And so by that reasoning, this religion says that the evil is where? It's out there. Right? But the Bible tells us that the sin is not out there. It's in our hearts. And Jesus told the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 20. It's when he was, he was warning his followers. He said, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. This religion of sin avoidance was the leaven of the Pharisees, right? It was this hypocrisy. And when he was talking to the, the Pharisees in Matthew 20, he says, you know, it's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you, but instead it what comes from your heart and proceeds out of your mouth that defiles you. That is why Christ had to die for us and the Holy Spirit had to indwell us to make us into something new from the inside out. We as Christians don't avoid sinners to prevent contamination. Instead, we have compassion for them because we struggle with the same sins and the same temptations as they do. And were it not for the Holy Spirit living in us, we would have remained in darkness as well. If it's not, and this is a hard pill for some of us to swallow, we're kind of proud of how righteous we are sometimes, but if it's not for the Holy Spirit, we would be just like them. And so every day, people... We have to wake up in the morning and go before the Lord and, and rely upon His grace, rely upon the Holy Spirit's power, or our nature 
will make us just like everyone else. And so if we're going to live in stark contrast to the culture of this world, it's not by our efforts. It's not by sin avoidance. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit working in your life and by God's grace. So I want to make a a few just concluding exhortations, and we'll go ahead and invite the worship team to go ahead and come forward. If if you're here this morning and, and you're part of the body of Christ, these verses this morning should challenge you, and they need to remind you that as believers, we should always be about tearing down idols in our lives that lead to sin and betray our identity and render our mission ineffective. If you're being convicted by the Holy Spirit this morning that sin in your life is doing just this, then, brothers and sisters, I want to invite you this morning. We're going to sing in just a minute. I'm going to invite you to pray for the Holy Spirit to break these chains and tear down those idols of sin in your life and reclaim your identity as a disciple. If you're here this morning and you know in your heart that you're not a believer and that you also know that the Holy Spirit is working and calling you, then I would ask you this morning to simply submit and ask God to change you from the inside out. It's the only way it will ever work. Ask God to remove the desire for idols of futility in your life. Those are the two exhortations that I would encourage you to do this morning while we sing. There will be a few uh, elders. I know Tom is here and Don. There will be a few elders on the side if you'd like to pray for them. If you're in the body of Christ, or if you really want to know what this means for the Holy Spirit to indwell you, what it means to be a disciple or a follower of Christ, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you to go talk to them. If, if that's just too embarrassing or intimidating for you, um, on our website, you can reach our pastors, you can reach our elders. We all have emails and phone numbers. Just go on Tomball Bible Church's website. Make this morning where you stick a stake in the ground and say, no more. I know my identity. I don't want to be a 67 Charger Christian anymore.